Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and on today's episode we are looking at emotion at work in workplaces in particular because the the theme of emotions in in the physical workplace is something that has interested me for a few years and partly from a self-interest point of view because I've worked in a number of different um, places and locations. I've worked from a, a mansion hall through to a great big open plan office and in the work that I do I get to go and visit lots of client offices as well so I get to experience lots of different places and I've always been fascinated by the way that physical spaces kind of affect people's feelings and also um, how those feelings then can I guess transform and move around a, a space so I really wanted to get somebody on the podcast who knew what they were talking about more than me just talking about my experiences because um, often you know people talk about slides or bean bags or um, other things that look or port, uh, ping pong tables that's another thing that look cool in the workplace but I wanted to get someone in who on the podcast who kind of knows a lot more about it than me so let's get our guest on the air so our guest today is Monica Parker hello Monica hi Phil how are you today I'm very well thank you how are you yeah excellent thanks for having me good I'm really excited for you to be here as well um so because uh, I think even before the podcast went live I've been wanting to get somebody on um to talk about the workplace I'm really really excited for today so it's been nearly a year in the making for me to get someone on the podcast talking about the workplace so it's really oh good. goodness the pressure's on then yeah no yeah no pressure <laughs> no pressure um, but before we get into the kind of the topic in, in detail, I wanted to ask you a, a, an, what I call a, an innocuous yet unexpected question. Um, and so what I'd like to know from you is what makes a great traveling companion? Ooh, what makes a great traveling companion? You know, I have someone in mind because my first trip to Australia um, was with a coworker, and I was really oh, nervous really? about it um, because I thought this is very intimate. You know, you're in close quarters with this person for a long period of time. Um, and I discovered he was a marvelous traveling companion. And what made him a great traveling companion was that he was easygoing. Okay. He was had a high level of EQ, so he was always noticing how I was feeling. Um, He was a low-stress, low-pressure kind of guy, so nothing really sort of got him too riled up. Um, And I would say that um, he was also a good traveler. So I think to be a good companion, you just have to be – you have to enjoy it. So that's my my, uh, – I guess, summary of a good traveling companion. You know, if it's long-term, curiosity helps too, you know, so that they're excited about things. But I think the key, they always say, if you want to know if you've got a good partner for life, lose lose your luggage early on in the relationship. And you'll learn how they deal, you'll learn how they deal with, with, um, with unexpected um, challenges. And so I think to be able to go with the flow is probably the, the most important quality of a, a good travel companion. Oh, so I've not heard that one before about the, you know, lose your luggage with somebody. That's a oh, new yeah. one. I've not heard that one before. Oh, yeah. That's, I, 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 I like that as an one. idea. <laughs> or run yeah, out of gas. That's another one. You could run out of gas on a road trip too. I guess something that, um, yeah, something that, that what puts, the, puts you under an element of, uh, of, of pressure I suppose in a way but not but not so much that um that it's an insurmountable amount of pressure yeah it's not life or death but it, it helps yeah, yeah. you see how someone sort of deals with a little bit of um of unexpected chaos and and um and whether they add to that situation whether they um 
whether they exacerbate it or whether they actually help smooth over the wrinkles. Because I'm definitely, um, I've, I've found a good partner who I can uh, lose the luggage with. And, uh, and he's definitely a guy who likes to smooth over the wrinkles for everybody. So that's a good quality. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so I, I, we've never lost luggage, but whenever we go away, I, I'm always of the mantra. I think the only time it's been different is when we went to, um, my wife and I went on honeymoon to the Maldives, and uh, then we overpacked. My, my, <laughs> wife, my wife is a massive overpacker, um, and we didn't lose our luggage for long. Our luggage arrived the day after we, we, we landed, so it wasn't like a loss forever. It was just a day late, so we were, we were left in our, in our traveling clothes for 24 hours or so. If there's some place to be left in your traveling clothes, probably the Maldives is not the worst. Oh, exactly, exactly. And and, and whenever we, whenever else we've been away, I've always said, well, whenever you know, there's always shops. There's always shops around, so it's not like you. you it's know, none of it is insurmountable. Yes, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and so that um, some of those qualities that you talked about there is are they some of those qualities that you look for in people that you work with as well? Well, I think being able, as a consultant, being able to go with the flow is pretty important. I think mm. the EQ quality as well. You know, we're we're paid to listen as much as we're paid to give advice. And so um, we deal with change. You know, uh, Hatch is, um, a lot of people want to call us workplace strategists. We're not. What we say is that we are human analytics and change consultancy that specialize in the future of work. And so really at the heart, we're talking about change and how people are are going to um, manage change and and sometimes that change is unexpected sometimes there's a little bit of chaos mixed in there and so um, we are there as I said to try to smooth out some of the wrinkles to help people feel um, less anxious about um, about the process and so it's really important that while we hire for a certain level of, um, of capability Mm-hmm. Um, and skill sets um, that at the end of the day, they're people that our clients will feel really have a high degree of psychological safety with, that they'll feel safe with, that they'll be willing to experience this change with them. And I think that means, yeah, they've got to be go with the flow. They've got to have high EQ and they have to enjoy what they do. And when uh, and so when you say human analytics and change consultancy, then can I can I unpick that title a little bit more? Yeah, so, Absolutely. So what does human analytics mean then? Or how, or how do you go about that human analytics? So what there are a lot of folks out in the future of work world um, who are ex-designers, who are ex-project managers or moves managers. Um, and I think that they have, uh, they certainly have a skill set that can be brought to bear in the change field. But I'm a believer that in the same way I go to my dentist for dentistry and I go to my mechanic to fix my car, I don't mix the two, um, that there is an actual science behind change. And that science is social science. Um, and so all of our consultants are master's level social scientists or above. And mm-hmm. the work that we do is gathering human analytics information. So gathering social scientific information that we then analyze to help us give one window into the organization. So it's very much like a thermometer. You're not going to take somebody's temperature and then go, oh, but I can diagnose you wholly that way. It's a set of diagnostics that allow us to understand how the organization is operating, 
Um, and then we go in and start really doing some of our, our ethnographic and observational research, really just talking to people to understand. And that's where the communications element comes out. And that's a bit more when we move from the heavy social science into the change, that's where we start using um, consultants who are have experience in uh, uh, more of a corporate environment. And they're mixing mm. that with uh, with our consultants who are have that social science background. Okay. Uh, oh, there was a lot in there as well that I wanted to, to ask more about. Um, so in terms of the... Sorry. That's I fine. No, it's you. okay. No, it's okay. So in terms of that, that social science um, bias then and, and the way that you go about gathering that data, are you doing that kind of through interview, through observation, a combination of the two, or are you, are you analyzing other... So we have um, a um, we have a few different ways. So we've got uh, we have online survey tools that mm-hmm. use a predictive behavior algorithm developed um, by a group of scientists out of UMass Amherst. Um, we have a um, uh, a a mobile app that people can download where we're able to um, gather photographic information. Um, So sort of people doing their own ethnographic research within their environment. We do observations and we also do interviews. And we're quite cautious about the way that we do those. So we'll have different consultants collect and analyze one set of data and another consultant collect and analyze um, another so that we're not coming into um, any of the analysis with a bias. Um, I know that some people, there are a lot of people that use, um, survey tools out in the world. Um, and I would just encourage them to get an actual, uh, uh, someone who is a, a, a scientist in, um, in the science of surveys and who understands, mm. um, that level of analytics, because I think there's a lot of bad survey data that's being thrown around. Um, that people are not giving the rigor to that they need to. And, and that's something that we're really passionate about and um, stand very firmly behind is having all of our, the social scientific data that we collect has a tremendous amount of rigor. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's absolutely important. You know, I, I, I was in with a client, it was last year, um, and they asked me to, um, so I, I, similar to you, I did a, a cultural diagnostic piece. So I, I went in and um, did some interviews with um, with a representative sample of, of different populations within the organisation, um, and then I transcribed those interviews and uh, plugged them into a, um, a corpus linguistics tool, so we could then look at on a on a on a, on a kind of metadata level what language with diff- with the different populations using and what could that tell us about their stance or their orientation towards different things within the organization um so the rigor that went into the questions that i asked in my interviews was really important and like you you know as you said getting that that validation from um practitioners with experience in social science questioning and and, and surveying and then when i was asked to compare that with the or not to compare because that's not that's an inaccurate um, word. So when I was asked to look at my results in the context of the employee engagement survey results, as an example, when I looked through the employee engagement survey questions, there were some really, really poorly phrased questions. You know, questions that were full of either presuppositions or, yeah. or leading or, or, and or leading and... or making implications and all sorts of things. It's it. 
And I think um, those bad surveys do a disservice then to everybody who tries to run a good survey. I still think a survey is a great way to collect a lot of information. It's a great way to engage people. Um, if you're authentic in, in your commitment to, um, to doing something once you get the data, I think they can be very helpful. They can't be the only thing you do um, and they can't happen in a vacuum, but I think they're, they're an incredibly impactful tool if done right. Um, and I don't think that people who um, who don't have experience in it appreciate the um, the depth that you go to everything from whether it's a, a five point or a seven point fulcrum or non fulcrum Likert um, scale um, yeah, yeah. to what kind of methodology you use to analyze it, um, even whether um, you know you're using R or SPSS in the analysis. And there's there's so much detail that goes into it. And to be fair. I only scratch the surface that the hatchlings um, back in HQ, they're the ones that are the real geniuses behind this work. Um, and and my job, I think, as, as the founder is to, is to help deliver them the insights because um, the data is, is important and meaningful. Um, but then our job as consultants also is to help drive those insights. Um, and that's where combining things like you use sentiment analysis with observation data mm -hmm. and, and visioning really helps us start to craft that, well, what does it all mean? Because it's not enough for it to just be data. I think sometimes we're awash in too much, um, but for it to be insightful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and as you said earlier on, it's, it's only a, you know, it's, it's, if you only look at the well, surveys are a data point. Yeah, yes. just like interviews are a data point. Just exactly. you know, so, and it's about the you know, trying to build the, the the richer picture that you get from the, from the different data points. That is where the where some of the insight and and the real kind of benefit for individuals and organisations can come. And you mentioned as well that you that um, people take pictures. So the yep. people, yeah. So how so, how does that kind of form in in the analysis? So we have analysis? a tool called Fido. P H I D O. Mm -hmm. And what Fido does, um, we call it. Um, uh, Pinterest for workplace emotions. And in essence, what it is, is they, the users, the, the staff at, at um, organizations, the employees will get um, uh, questions fed to them through um, a mobile app that they download to their um, phone, and it's on iPhone or Android. And the app will ask some questions, and the questions could be as simple as a keep, keep, ditch, create exercise, which is great when we work with designers as well. So what would you keep about your workplace? What would you ditch, and what would you create? Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah, but we'll also do some that will say, you know, where are you eating your lunch today? What do you hope or fear the future of work is? Um, and they're able to take pictures or download pictures, and then once they fill that out um, with their comment, then they can see um, all of their colleagues' um, pictures and comments and favorite them. And so it creates a, a level of engagement, um, very much you know, a small little uh, social network for the organization. And what that allows us to do is start to get, again, a picture is worth a thousand words to start to capture some um, more visual information. We also know from an emotive point of view um, from our research that if you mm -hmm. ask someone to respond in written language um, or to think in words, it, it, it triggers their logical part of their brain. But if you ask them to draw a picture, 
think in pictures, take a picture, it triggers their emotive brain. And obviously, you know that emotion at work is important. We're mm -hmm. talking about changing their work homes. And so we want to tap into that emotive part as well. And we'll run the comments through sentiment analysis. And that really helps us start to get into that as much more of a qualitative piece of work as opposed to yeah. the quantitative that we get from the survey. But it helps us to start to understand what are some of the real pinch points, some of the fears, some of the things that people don't want to lose in any kind of workplace change. And um, we found it to be incredibly interesting data that we get out of it. And it's just fun. It's a little different way to engage um, people who perhaps aren't as keen taking a 15-minute you know, survey online to, to capture them in a different way. Mm. And so, so the analysis... Uh, then you, you said you do the assessment analysis of the text that comes with the pictures, mm -hmm. and then the and then in terms of analysis of the pictures themselves, do you do that by the kind of the likes or the the the, the likes or the shares or the favorites that we do we do the likes get? and the shares and the favorites, mm. and then we also compare it to um, our our basically our benchmark database. So you know if we'll say uh, we can say well most. Most law firms will say their favorite their their favorite thing about their workday is the view out of their office. Or most people will say what they couldn't live without is coffee. So coffee is important. So it becomes something that we're okay. able to be comparative. It's really really helpful also for um, for designers from an aesthetic point of view that they can start to see spaces that might exist within um, uh, the the space that are particularly useful and helpful. Um, and then those that people really want to get rid of. <clears throat> I, I have a great story about sort of the, the insight that, that we've gained from this. We were working with, mm. um, with, the, with the Premier League, with the Football League folks, and, um, and they were doing just a, a, a small brush up on their offices, um, and they wanted to really serve the um the the mission of the organization they felt it wasn't doing a, a good enough job of that and they have if you're ever lucky enough to go into the premier league offices just trophies everywhere and yeah, of course they have the big 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 trophy that's the premier league trophy and then little trophies everywhere else and it was really interesting when we got the fido data back that a number of people said that one of their favorite trophies was this much smaller one that was um, really for, that was given um, for community events, for children um, uh, in communities uh, that were playing a, a smaller event that was sponsored by the Premier League. And oh, this really? was surprising to people because they said, well, A, this is great because our mission is about bringing sport to everyone. Um, but B, we just didn't realize that this mattered so much and it's been sort of stuck away in this little corner. And so they were able with just a small thing to move this, uh, this trophy to a point of pride, to a place of pride where people could feel that while equally the Premier League sends this message of, of, you know, a, a really big sporting event that it's more than that. It's about the mission. And that was, that was gold dust for, us as consultants for the designers and and for the business as a whole because they said oh well it, not only is this a great message but it means that our mission is being um really internalized by the people who work for us that's a really great story you're yeah. really pleased with that <laughs> uh, and, and and i would 
Yeah, because I was just trying to think, either in my experience or, or if I may be so bold in my opinion, would that would would that piece of data have elicited itself through a standard survey or through um, standard interviews? And I don't think it would. We didn't. We found in the interviews, people well, said yeah, that's a good sport question, matters. Right? You know, people yeah, said sport yeah, yeah. matters and um, we like the trophies, but we couldn't, we didn't narrow it down to that one. It was, you know, well, we like the celebration of the trophies. We like sport. We like being a part of a, of a, of a history of something that matters, but not that particular thing. And that was such an easy fix. Mm. Um, and one, we just, we didn't pick up anywhere else. Um, so it, it, yeah, it was a nice little, it was a nice little nugget to see that there, there is something, there's a richness there and that's what it is. You know, it's a tapestry, it's layers. It's like any other, um, you know, if you look at art or music or any of those that that's, that if you, if you're monolithic, if it's flat and it's approach, then the output will be flat. But if you can come at it from the number of different angles, which we do, um, then you start to get this nuance and this richness to the data. And then you can get nuance and richness to the insights and, and the, the recommendations that you deliver. And, and how do clients respond to, to that data? So if we, if we stick with that Premier League example, so I, the, the, I could hear in your voice a, a, a real strong sense of surprise and pride in, in mm. that example. Um, and what other kind of emotions or what other kind of responses do you get from clients when, when you present your, you know, the, the, the findings from the, from the real variety of data sets that you collect? Well, sometimes there's there's happy surprise. Sometimes there's not so happy surprise. Okay. Um, oftentimes there will be a few very senior people that will say, I sort of suspected this is what it would be, but now I can prove it. Um, but yeah, sometimes there's, it's hard. You know, we joke that if you've ever been to therapy, a good therapist will say, well, my job is just to hold a mirror up to you. I'm not here to tell you you're right or wrong. It's just so that you can look at yourself more effectively. That's hmm. what this data does. It holds a mirror up. We're not trying to be pejorative when we tell someone what, what's happening or judgmental, but it's to say, this is who, this is who your organization is through this lens. Is this what you want to be or do you want to change it? And sometimes it's sometimes there's some tough information to swallow. Um, sometimes there are comments that can be hurtful, even if um, you have people that are uh, longer tenure within an organization and they feel that maybe some of the new hires are are n not fond of the culture, and mm. those other people were responsible for building the culture. They may feel disenfranchised because of that. But at the end of the day. Um, most of the organizations who hire us did so because they um, have come to terms with this fear of of knowing. They know that knowing in and of itself is is power, um, and that then what they choose to do with that is, is really up to them as an organization. Um, and so, yeah, there sometimes is a bit of anxiety that we experience mm. prior yeah. to it. And, um, and a little bit of, of, of consternation or concern, but we usually work through that pretty quickly to say, look, you know, these are the things that are solvable. These are the things that are going to be harder. Let's break it out into to phases and see how we can help move you forward. And so when I think about workplace design, a lot of the examples that I've 
been part of when I've been in organisations is when sort of that workplace design is done from a top down point of view. You know, so uh, someone will arrive with a with a plan and you know whether it be a desk plan or a layout plan and say you know this is this is what we're looking to do and then people discuss and and, and debate where stuff should be and so on and so on but it sounds like what you're trying to do is to do workplace design from a bottom-up point of view would that be a would that be a fair well yes and no so we're not designers okay. so in the same way that i would say that designers probably shouldn't be doing social science social scientists should not be doing design i did okay. study design so i can speak the language of it i think i understand the the basic tenets of it but i am not a designer and none, none of the hatchlings are but what we're doing is we are collecting social scientific data about space we're also collecting it about um, about people um, and about technology, which are the, the oft-quoted three spheres of, of workplace. Um, I think that there are a couple of different theories on how to approach design. I am of the belief that, and there are folks you know, that would have said that it's not that complicated, and probably design itself is not that complicated, but even okay. if you designed a great workplace and didn't engage people in the process of that journey, then you're gonna have potentially a culture problem. So really, we're culture experts that can help ensure that the workplace appropriately reflects and aligns with either that present culture or your ideal aspirational future culture. Um, at the end of the okay. day, I think design should be fluid because it was only 10 years ago that the iPhone was invented. The whole world has changed since that time. I don't, I can't even imagine what will happen in the next decade. Um, that's usually the length that somebody's signing a, a lease, you know, 10 years with a five year break. So yeah. the idea that, that it's set it and forget it, I think is a, a thing of the past. Um, and so design needs to be able to be iterative, but the key is having that baseline of people data so that as you iterate, you're always coming back to that question of, well, what did we hear from people and how can we align it with them? Um, but there's no question, you know, we should always have, people should have access to natural light, air quality should be good, um, they should be able to um, find places to be quiet and places to be collaborative, you know, all these different elements. But I think more important than space is that people should have psychological safety, People should have a sense of well-being. They should be able to um, uh, have fair options for um, progress through the ranks. They should have flexible working available to them. And to me, those are more important than the design. The design can be a facilitator for those things. And, and I guess it... Hmm. Could it also be a... So would, would they, do those things trump design? Could you have like a... Absolutely. Okay. So you I could think have... You can have design... You can have design that is so... That's, that's so poor, that's so poorly aligned with basic human needs or with the organizational culture that it, it becomes um, a constant sticking point. 
but we only need to look at what Stuart Brand calls low road design. So we have, you know, lots of organizations that started in basements or in garages, and they were yep. able to flourish in that environment. We know that um, that there are a lot of different ways that design can meet certain needs. Um, so I believe that the cultural elements will trump design. However, if we look at the, you know, the idea of a two-factor theory, um, that you can still be super engaged, um, but really, really annoyed at the fact that the toilets are always dirty. And those two things can exist simultaneously at the same time and still create a lot of issues and conflict because the toilets are always dirty or the open plan is always noisy, but I can still be super engaged. And I think that the, the idea that it's some sort of hot hierarchy of needs that, oh, first you get the space right and then the culture right, or first the culture right and then the space right, they really exist on, I think, within two factors. Um, mm. and, but the culture is, in my opinion, a, um, a more meaningful and more difficult nut to crack. Hmm. So you might, so you could have the the sexiest, coolest, quirkiest kind of workplace in the world with loads of natural light, with individual air conditioned pods, so you never have the disagreements about who's hot or who's cold. Um, and you could have table tennis tables and a bar at the end of the room and you could have all of these things. But if the culture is toxic, then none of those things will matter because, because of the overriding culture. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if, if so, I mean, it's called Hertzberg's motivation hygiene theory. So Mm. if you've got, so that's all those things you're talking about are, are hygiene and maybe touch a little bit on motivation. But if you've got a horrible toxic culture where people are being harassed, um, where there's, um, rife favoritism, where there's bullying, where, um, where the business is unethical, um, where, uh, the work-life balance is, is so out of whack that you have people, um, that are, you know, have absenteeism because, and no one cares. There's no question that all that space will become as a gilded cage. You know, that, that, that's not going to help anybody. Um, we only need to look at Yahoo. They had some pretty groovy workplaces, but the, the, uh, the, the culture was toxic and mm. we've seen what's happened to them. Um, so I, I think that those, they are both important. Um, and I, and I believe that design matters. Um, but culture is absolutely key. And how, how do you, or in, in your experience, how, cause if, if culture is about how people feel or how, you know, how are the how the yeah yeah let's stick with that if culture is about how people feel how does how in your experience then has that kind of linked in with or overlapped with those physical with the physical spaces that that are that people work in that was a really poorly clumsily worded question i I think i i understand so space can be a great um messenger of culture so mm. if everybody's expected to work and I'll give you an example, which I will not name the client, um, of a, of a, a, a legal client, um, that basically used some of our information to, um, 
to continue to give all of the legal staff palatial offices with beautiful views and then um, max packed all of their non-legal onto one floor um, overlooking a, 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 we'll say, not as nice of a space. Okay. Um, that sent a very clear message. To be fair, I think it was very aligned with their culture, regrettably, which is that um, legal and fee earners um, have this much value, and we'll show that in our workspace, and non-legal, non-fee earners have much less value, and therefore we will give them a much less um, enjoyable space. Um, you can see that on the positive side where um, if the business decides to go into open plan, that everybody works in open plan. So this isn't based on, um, on a hierarchical nature that they say, well, this is a, an, an organizational decision. Um, there's nothing uh, more hypocritical than working with a group that says, oh, we're very flat. We're a very flat organization. But then all the executives say, everybody else should work in open plan, but we need our offices. Hmm. Um, I think that you can send that message by your ways of working. So are people, while they're given these different work settings, are you actually giving them the, um, the organizational freedom and the technology in order to take advantage of them? Um, I think using technology is uh, the new key to the executive toilet, the idea that, well, I'm higher up the food chain, so I get nicer tech than you do. Um, yeah. I think that sends a big message. So I think messages in the culture around who's valued, um, hierarchical um, issues um, around um, freedom, flexibility, and authenticity um, is can all be very well displayed or less well displayed in, um, in a work environment, in the workplace design. I also think there's a great opportunity that gets lost in a lot of corporate environments, which is the idea of a narrative workplace. You know, every business hopefully has a story to tell. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of offices don't tell that story. There's some work that um, Adam Grant did that he, um, some of his research said that people's um, performance levels can increase by as much as 400% when they're given the opportunity to talk to someone who was a direct recipient of whatever problem you're solving for them. Um, imagine if somehow your workplace could tell that message of the people who were being helped by whatever it is you're doing. And it doesn't, mm -hmm. it's not just for nonprofits. It can be for, for any business. Every business hopefully is solving someone's problem, is making their life a bit easier or richer some way. Um, and to tell that story as opposed to some of these cookie cutter offices that really, maybe they have logos everywhere, but don't tell a story. I think that's a lost opportunity. Hmm. And have you, again, I'm not asking you to, to name, sort of do a name drop, but have you, have you worked with clients that have done that narrative workplace um, particularly well? And if the so, what yep. strategies did they? Uh, uh, okay, and which what strategies did they use then? So I, I suppose I'm thinking if I'm a listener to this podcast, then I'm thinking, oh, that sounds really great, this narrative workplace idea. But what would that look like in reality? Is that's what was behind my question? So I will say the best one I've ever seen in the world is not is not one of my projects. Um, okay, but I still feel like I have to say it because I think they did a brilliant job of it, which is IKEA, um, IKEA in Malmo, Sweden. Um, they are. They did a really um, elegant way of of integrating their um, their product throughout the space. 
Um, it's a very seamless experience in the way that going to an Ikea store tries to be quite seamless. You're led through the space in a very welcoming way. Mm. Um, they don't have any hot food on site. Um, they encourage you to go across the street to the Ikea building to have to the Ikea shop that's there to have um, any hot food so that you're interacting with the customers. So again, you're always having that opportunity to see the people you're serving. Um, uh, okay. Everything from their staircases being made with offcuts of, um, of table legs that they used to use to some of their quiet booze being made out of um, some of their shelving. I just thought it was a really um, elegant way to, to design for a space. Um, probably one of our best examples is um, an organization out of Australia um, called Porter Davis. And Porter Davis are luxury home builders. Um, okay. And their spaces just um, were in the, the suburbs, um, very nondescript um, sort of corporate uh, spaces. And these are people who are coming sometimes to buy their first home. It's a big investment. Talk about a story to tell. You know, this is places where families will be grown, where people will, you know, will draw the little lines up the side of the door jam to, yeah. to show their children's growth. Like, it's meaningful stuff. So um, the designers that they brought in and with the work that we collected, they actually had all of the different neighborhoods in this one giant floor plate reflect the different styles of homes that they design. It was done in a really beautiful way. But again, they fundamentally changed the culture as well. They went to, um, it became, it was voted one of the, um, uh, the best workplace of the year um, in Australia. Uh, they uh, went to, all flexible working, so work anywhere, anytime, um, hot desking, uh, fitness programs, um, fresh fruit, uh, and um, exercise in the space. So mm. it was a really, it was a, a transformation, not just of space, but of people and technology as well. Both of those sound amazing. I, so, I, I, I've been, I was blown away, but the, the, I can speak to Porter Davis. That takes courage to do what they did. That was a big mm. leap. In, in, in what way? Um, it was so different than what people had experienced in the past. Um, it asked them to work in an entirely different way. Um, and it, it could have gone horribly wrong. So uh, there was a lot of boldness there because, you know, the organization, um, it wasn't just, it didn't just need a physical change. You know, there was a lot of culture work and process work that needed to be done. And I think sometimes people, um, leaders are afraid that when you start to unpick things, then they'll be on the hook for fixing them all. And that's certainly not the case. You don't have to fix everything. You can just mm -hmm. own that there are problems and that you're, you know, going to do the best to ameliorate them. But this organization really decided to try to fix everything that they unpicked. And I was just, I was really proud of them for that. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, yeah. And I guess the bit that, that really resonates with me is the, the way that it was done to fully align with this, with the stories that, the consumer or the customer has so rather than the driver being behind making some of those changes whether it be about you know work anywhere anytime or 
uh, making sure we're looking after somebody's physical health and exercise or whether it be supporting somebody's emotional health and emotional well-being rather than doing those things because they're you know people say we should or because you know we want to save cost or reduce office space or whatever that might be what was behind it was a how can we create a, a workplace or an environment where it's it's aligned with with what we as an organization do that's what I heard anyway was that, was that yes it is yeah? Yeah. and that it was evidence-based so I think that um the challenge that um that every organization has is they might say, well, then we can get a designer and they'll, they can do all that work with us at the, at the senior level. Um, but I, I can say that a change of that magnitude, had you not engaged with everyone to say, what are your, what are your thoughts? What are your fears? How can we support you on this? So that that was reflected as well in the process. That's part of what made it successful. They had a they had a full-time change manager and support from Hatch for a year to do that project. Hmm. And so, if I was to go to to, uh, I want I was going to say the other end of the scale, but I'm not sure if that's the right phrase either. So, if I was to think about that from a different point of view, then, so if I was to to put myself in the shoes of you know your, your average organizational development or or HR practitioner who might be listening to this podcast. Um, and they and they didn't have that you know per, that that full time um, somebody within the organisation and the support from Hatch. What could they? What could that individual start to do to to help them think more about um, the way that you know the these some of these aspects could be showing up in their workplaces? Well, I think um, the key to me is. Um, is having a an authentic, regular, trusted communication loop. So really listening to, you know, what's going on in your work life, and that includes the, the physical built environment. How do you think we can support you? And then feeding back, you are heard, and this is what we're doing on a very regular basis. You know, so many organizations do maybe a year annual survey and there might be two or three questions in it about space. Mm -hmm. Um, How are, how can, I would also say that HR should try to work more closely with facilities to elicit some of that information. Maybe their facilities is gathering some data that HR can do something about and vice versa. Um, But when we work with, um, an organization that says, look, we can't hire a full-time person and we just want you to come in and be some of the course correction, the rocket fuel for the change program. What are the things that we can do? And that is the, the key element is to say, you know, decide what's right for your culture, but develop some mechanism, be it a pulse survey or an email or happy, not happy buttons or whatever it might be of a regular feedback loop. And it's got to be a loop up and down and back up again. Um, Mm. And you miss a week and then you've lost trust. So if you say we're going to send a survey out every Friday and then you don't do it on a Friday, then you've broken the trust. There's a social contract there that you've broken. And so I think being consistent, being authentic, radical transparency. um, You know, I I think people don't realize there's a there's a book by Chip Conley called emotional equations and what Conley set out to do is to understand 
the relationship between words because he said regular equations are relationships between numbers, mathematical equations. So I yeah, want to okay. understand relationships between words. And he picked the word anxiety. And the reason he picked anxiety is because there was a study done by Accenture that said anxiety is the single most common emotion felt in the workplace. And so um, he said anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. It's not additive, it's multiplicative, meaning that any increase in uncertainty, any increase in powerlessness increases anxiety. And we know that anxiety is not a positive emotion in the workplace. So by creating that degree of certainty and keeping that people know that they'll be heard and then trying to give over some modicum of power, whatever that might be, that will decrease anxiety. But as soon as they feel disempowered, as soon as that certainty that they have is gone, that anxiety will spike. Mm -hmm. So anything that as an organization you can do to give over control and to give a sense of, of certainty will, will improve people's aspect on work. You just added a book to my um, to my reading list. Thank you. Oh, it's a it's a good one. I mean, I particularly like I particularly like that equation, and I I'll be fair. I use it just about every chance I get because I think it's really powerful. Um, mm. Because I think that especially I know that executives have the most of both of those. They have the most certainty. We live, look, you know, there, there's yeah, uncertainty yeah. in the world. But they have the most power and the most certainty out of any part of the organization. So if there's something keeping them up at night, imagine how the rest of the organization feels. And to, to be empathetic to that, that anxiety and to help people, I think a lot of, I think a lot of executives think I will hold on to information until I have the whole story because I don't want to create anxiety, but they've got to start realizing that that news is traveling whether you want it to or not. People are talking. Um, yeah. And the sooner that you can start to share and create a level of, of transparency, then I, in my experience, that anxiety begins to decrease. Yeah, I, I was doing some mentoring recently with a, um, with a HRD and they were asking me, um, so the organization was in a, in a state of turmoil, um, uncertainty about uh, future and so on. Um, and, and they were saying, you know, what, yeah, the conversation we were having was, well, how, what should we share? How, how should we share it? How much should we share and how quickly should we share it? Um, and I said, well, the, the, the more of the void you have, the more that will, you know, people want to fill the void. Yeah, and then they will fill the void with gossip or with rumor or with um, supposition or even just blatant, you know, um, manufactured information if, if needs be, because the void is the worst kind of place to, to be. Um, and and the, res the response I got was, well, yeah, but the challenge with that is like if any of this got out, then that could affect the, um, you know, the long term kind of commercial success and future of the organization. I said, well, for me, there's got to be somewhere in between. It can't be, you know, it doesn't, if it can't be all, it can't be nothing either. So there needs to be something in, in between. And even if that is, um, you know, I want to reassure everybody that we are working incredibly hard to find a future in your, you know, your the long term stability of the company is important or the, you know, securing success or you know, securing jobs or whatever that might be. There needs to be some kind of story that you that you tell or it needs to be a true story. Don't make stuff up um, to reduce that uncertainty 
has got to be a good thing because the more vague you leave it and the longer you leave it vague the the worse it will be you know and i said a, a minimum you need to reassure people that they have a choice about their future you know so even acknowledging something like if you you know i can understand that people want to be going and looking on job boards and if they're looking around for other roles and i understand that completely and if i was in your you know if i was in your shoes i'd probably be doing the same thing as well um because we don't know what the future is going to hold and i want you to know as soon as we can share then we will that sort of thing i said that for me that's a much better place to be than just saying nothing and leaving radio silence absolutely and um and that is a similar concern we hear when people are even con- uh, considering embarking on um, a workplace analysis. Well, what if we learn things and then we can't do them all and I'm not sure if we should and it's a bit of this feeling of, as you said, all or nothing. It doesn't have to be that way. Let's just start to see what can you, what can you tackle um, how do we start to parse this out? And then what can you communicate? So of course you can't negatively impact um, the commerciality of certain aspects. We find that when people are negotiating for a new building that they mm. want to move to. We can't tell people what building or what neighborhood because it could affect the negotiation. But you can still say to people some part of it and, and t- say what you can't say. Say what you can't fix. Look, see, these are the things we learned. We don't know how to fix these yet, but we've heard it and we'll do everything we can to try to mitigate it. Or these are the things we can't communicate to you quite yet because we're not sure what the impact would be, but we know that you want more information and we're going to try to communicate it as soon as we do. I tell people to regularly communicate. I don't have anything else to say right now, but we just want you to know that we're here and we're listening. Yeah, and that absolutely. can be powerful as opposed yeah. to this radio silence that organizations engage in and think, no, it's all fine because the executives are all chit chatting and know that things have progressed. And the last the, the, the employees have seen was a survey that went out and then nothing else. Um, and I think that that can, that can be quite demoralizing. Again, going back to the uncertainty and the powerlessness, you think I engaged in this, this, uh, exercise they asked me to, and now I've heard nothing back. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious. So off air, you mentioned that um, you have a couple of new hatchlings coming on board, and you mentioned the word hatchlings already. Um, so when it comes to sort of the well, and when I say the workplace, I don't necessarily just mean in terms of you know design. I'm talking in the in the broader sense as we've been discussing through the conversation so far. So what what do you do within Hatch? Um, to apply kind of what you know and, um, and what you learn through your work. How do you use that and apply that within within Hatch and with your Hatchlings themselves? Yeah, so it starts before we even hire. So um, we had a few hires that didn't quite fit um, in the early years. We tried to understand why that was. And what we learned is that we were hiring from pools of designers and um, from folks that didn't have a social science background trying to teach them. Um, the social science and what we've learned is we need to flip that around. So now um, we blind hire. Um, we work with a great recruiter who helps us with that. And basically she knows that we won't look at anybody that doesn't have a master's um, in social science or above. The reason for that is that we, um, we need them to understand in particular the statistical analysis that we know one learns in um, a master's social science degree. Yeah. She will collect um, the CVs take any identifying information off the top of them, send them to us. 
Um, we'll rank the CVs and then um, say that we want the top five CVs to write um, a blog post. The, they'll, we'll get the blog posts, we'll, um, we'll rank those, and then based on the top, say, three of those, we'll ask those people then to come in. At that point, we still don't know which blog belongs to who, which CV belongs to who. We'll ask them to present to us a, a deck um, on um, some aspect of the future of work. By that point, we might start to suss out who belongs to who, um, mm -hmm. and then we vote as a team. Um, and based on that is how we, um, we hire. One of the reasons I also did this is I, we kept hiring women, and I thought, am I biased that we're hiring women um, because I want to hire more women into the industry. Mm. Um, and so I was worried that maybe my own hiring biases were, um, were affecting the, the people that we were bringing in. Interestingly, now that we have moved to blind hiring, we're still hiring women. Um, and in fact, um, right now, um, uh, they, we've only got two men and the rest are women, but, um, we're really, so that's just the beginning. What we do once they join, um, we're members of WeWork. So we're one of WeWork and okay, yeah. um, oldest, um, uh, tenants. So we have two offices in London, um, one in Melbourne, um, and we're looking at opening one in New York as well. Um, and that really helps from, uh, an organizational cultural point of view because, it's hard being a consultant and frequently if consultants are doing their job well, you don't see each other very often because everybody's on client site. Um, so to have a community that supports you, um, even when you can't be with your other hatchlings, we find is very important. We also don't police time. So we have a work anywhere, anytime culture. Um, come into the office, don't come into the office. Uh, we have uh, a staff member who's um, from Munich. She will frequently go and work for a week from, um, from Munich and, and work virtually for us. That's not a problem. Um, and then we are trying to um, slowly build on our mission together. And it's hard as you are growing, growing, growing um, mm. to, to, to build that. But what we also don't want is for, there's this expression and we see this in our work where people say, oh, it's like a family. And we do think that we treat people as if it's a family, but sometimes a family also means that you're afraid um, to call people out for their behavior because, well, I wouldn't want to hurt my family members' feelings. And so we're really trying to balance that, um, that, that dynamic. And one of our, two of our most recent hires, we're hoping will start to bring a bit more rigor um, to how we approach some of those elements um, as opposed to what's been a fairly loose family environment up to now to, to, to create a, a bit more, more uh, solid feedback mechanisms. And we use technology to support as well. So we use mm -hmm. Asana, we use Slack. Dropbox and the like, which allow us to help support each other from anywhere in the world. Yeah, because yeah. I was interested in one of the phrases that you used right towards the start of, of our recording. You talked about um, you said we're redesigning their work homes, um, which I thought was an, an interesting kind of way to phrase it. Um, and the reason that's sort of jogged in my memory was because you mentioning family there and the idea of sort of I've then linked together family and homes. Um, People spend almost more waking time with their colleagues and, and their work environment than they do anywhere else. And yet people have so little say and, um, in the experience. And that's why it's naturally very 
anxiety provoking if people are going to change it even if it's not great the notion that it's going to be changed is 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 frightening if someone were to come in and say well i'm going to change everything about your house well wait a minute this is my house i live here and it is their work home and what i want um is for people's work homes to be more compelling to be more welcoming i went into this work you know, I have um, largely a background in nonprofit and activism. I went into this work because I believe that with better work comes a better world. I, I truly believe that. I believe that if people can feel better about their work, if they can feel more valued, then, um, then they will be happier. They will have a greater sense of, of well-being and balance. That will have a knock-on effect to their families, to their communities. Um, I'm a big believer as well in work not needing to always be what you get paid for. Um, so the idea of universal basic income is something that's very appealing to me so that yeah, yeah. Our, our work our, can have a real meaning and that meaning isn't necessarily based on the monetary value that society puts on it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very, yes, I'm very passionate that it's not just your office, it's your work home. And, and we do try to... Um, to cultivate that um, at Hatch as well. Yeah. So, so with the with so you mentioned about the universal basic income there. So, and I'm going to use that as a, as a segue into into the future of work. Then, so what um, what does your research or experience or what does your insight sort of tell tell you about what the future of work is is likely to be? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, I, think, I, I, know, I know it was a very okay. unfair question. No, that's okay. Um, I think there is some very interesting research that's being done um, by some other people. Um, one of the groups we're partnered with is an organization called Foundation for Young Australians. And they've done a lot of work about what the future looks like for, um, for young people today. And two of the things that I find most intriguing um, – are the ideas, this need for constant learning, um, that resiliency, one of the primary elements of resiliency will come from our ability to learn skills yeah. at, a, at, a, at a rate that perhaps we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. um, what that means then also is that rather than graduating with a degree that is somewhat monolithic, um, degrees will look more at skills clustering so saying that you have this cluster of skills that is around um, delivering a message or you have a cluster of skills um, that's around being a technician, but it's not specific because at least what their research shows is that um, a child entering or a young person entering the workforce today um, will have 16 jobs and five industries. Some of those jobs will be because people will choose to move. Some of them will be lost or fundamentally changed to automation. Some of them may just be um, redundancies. But that as these, as people move through these jobs, they will not just simply stay in one industry. This is a big um, blow to some of the very traditional models like law, where people are saying, yeah, "I." I don't want to go into law and stay in law. I don't want to become a, a partner. And so I think the knock-on effect of this need to always be learning with, um, with people changing jobs and industries more often is that the benchmarks that we set for people about what success is, is going to naturally change. So the idea of becoming a partner in a law firm, that was the 
pinnacle of, um, of what you sought within the legal sphere. But now more and more incoming legal grads are saying, not really interested in that. What are they interested in? Access, meaningful matters, um, learning from the smartest, the best and the brightest within the firm, and then having the ability potentially to pivot. So I think recognizing that there will be different benchmarks that we measure ourselves against certainly mm-hmm. um, is, is something I see in the future. And the ability, I don't see automation as this boogeyman. I don't see it as a negative at all. Um, I see it as the ability for the crappy work that we probably didn't want to be doing anyway to be, um, to be removed from our lives. And then what we're left with either is more meaningful work or more time. Um, Mm -hmm. and what I'd love to see is a model whereby, um, there was not so much judgment if people chose to, um, to work half-time, part-time jobs that were not as, um, where the remuneration was not as great um, because they felt it was more meaningful. But they could do that with the safety net of knowing um, that they could feed their families, that they could have health care, um, and that they could have a, a decent quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading a piece. Um, I was reading a piece in, I think it was on the BBC website today, um, for some research that has been done in in the UK and and how how to. So I I now want to make sure I I get it right. I I kind of reference it. So there was a a report by. Bye bye bye. The. Uh, Resolution Foundation, chaired by a guy called Lord Willits, talking about how the contracts between young and old had broken down. Um, recommendations including giving £10,000 to all young adults at the age of 25, which is funded by a lifetime receipts tax that would replace inheritance tax. So the idea being that an older generation pays more tax, and then what that does is that then gives a... But rather than saying a universal income, it gives a, a, a set figure to say right here's ten thousand pounds at the age of 25 that would allow you then to to in a way do what you want with it but it would um it could provide a a strong deposit towards property it could provide for additional retraining could provide for for whatever um but recognizing the fact that you're going to you know, that the, the the younger generation have got more um to do to achieve the same kind of things that, that the older generation currently have, if that makes sense. And I, I, I want to try all of these things. I think that some of the models we have, um, the, the, there's just this growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And, um, and, and I believe that when work becomes this thing that people dread so that they can just get money to put on the table um, or, or money to put in the bank so they can put food on the table, that that doesn't help us as a society. Um, I want to see the data. I don't want us to just assume. I like the pilots of all of these. I don't want to assume that um, that any one model works or doesn't work. Um, I, again, I'm, a, I'm an analytics person. I want to see the data, yeah, but I'm very yeah. encouraged by um, some of the pilots that are being done around universal basic income and that are sort of slaying these, um, 
these sacred cows of, well, if you just give people money, they'll just sit around and be lazy all day, which is not, in fact, the, the inherent nature of people. People do want to be, to do meaningful work and to contribute. That's mm. sort of what is our, in our basic nature. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I think I want to bring us sort of bring us together and start to wrap it up then, if that's all right. Yeah. So earlier on, um, I asked, you know, so if you were the, an average HR organizational development type person, what, what could they do to start themselves down this road? Um, is there anything else that you would add to that? So what, what could some starting steps be for, um, for people to start thinking about um, some of the areas that we've talked about today? Um, I think it, it, it goes back to, if, if it goes back to just starting to ask the questions, really think about what, how can you engage people in a process of authentically understanding people's needs and then responding to them? Mm -hmm. I don't think that in the initial, it has to be complicated. Um, I think there comes a time in all of these larger transformations where you do need to pull in experts. Those experts may exist within the organization or you may need to get them from outside the organization. But to start, just start by asking real questions and they may not be the perfect questions and they may be a bit biased here or there. Um, yeah. Asking questions and really listening to the responses and trying um, to react to them in a meaningful way. And that sounds simple because people go, oh, well, I do that every day. Um, but maybe just to question really how, how much commitment are you getting um, in that. Mm. I would also look at your, you know, how, how are you going to access resources? How are you going to access um, uh, decision makers? Once you gather this information, what is your end goal? Um, but at the end of the day, I think it just starts with a, a really meaningful listening exercise. And I think, is it unfair? So, hmm, I'm going to say it anyway, I suppose. I've, I've, now, I've now framed it as saying that I might be being unfair. Um, intently listening is really hard, and it's really hard to do, and especially in, in a workplace where you already work. And what I mean by that is, you know, so there, there are the old stories that everybody says they hear, you know, so when you say, oh, what would you like to, I don't know, question like, um, to, if I was to take one of yours from earlier on, what would you, what was it, what would you keep, what would you? Oh, keep, ditch, create. Keep, yeah, so, so even if you went with that, you know, as a, in, in the workplace, tell me what would you keep, what would you dish and what would you create? The, the risk is that you, when someone starts to respond to that question, you hear what you think they're going to say. You hear what you expect them to say, not what they're actually saying. Absolutely. Um, and, and that, and, I think, is the, the... Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. That, that's the risk. And that's why I think at some point, when you really start to do the meaningful work, you probably need some guidance. But I don't think that that's any different than anything else. You know, if you want to lose... 20 pounds, you can read a bunch of stuff online about how to do it. And then eventually you may need somebody's help to do that. Um, you know, Weight Watchers has been proven to be one of the best ways to lose weight. Why? Because you're with a community and those are people that know what they're doing. 
Um, if you want, if you, if you have something that needs to be done to your, um, your house, you know, plumbing, you may do a little bit, you'll watch some videos on YouTube to DIY, and then eventually you might have to bring somebody in. And so I think that there's tweaks that can be made, but there's always a, there's always a risk. Um, mm. and there's a risk even, you know, these are people, they're humans. You're not going to get it 110% right every time. Um, and I guess we'll go back. This is a nice way to sort of bring it all full circle because mm -hmm. what makes a great traveling companion, what makes a great, um, coworker, what makes a great, um, you know, person in HR who's going to support is someone who is, goes with the flow is, has a high level of EQ, um, and, and I think that, that those two elements, that if you can look at yourself and say, I'm really, really trying to listen to this person and um, I'm willing to, find, to be found wrong either now or at some point in the future and deal with that, the little bit of personal um, chaos and, and, uh, and issues with my confirmation bias that might occur, then I think that that's, that's the answer. And mm -hmm. if you're willing to go there, then I, I think that there's power in that. Wonderful. Thank you. So some, so a couple of final questions then. So I, as we worked our way through, I've captured a few of the, a few references and links for, for places. So we've talked about the Adam Grant study in terms of um, performance levels. I, I'll put some links into to that particular study. We've talked about the emotional equations book. I didn't capture. I didn't catch the author though when you said it. Who is the author Chip of that? Conley. Chip, Chip Conley. Chip Conley. And I can send you this. I can send you that and the um, the information on uh, Porter Davis. There's a great video that they produced about the outputs on that and um, the Adam Grant study as well, if you like. Yeah, that'd be lovely. And if there's any other um, any other books or videos or TED talks or anything that you would recommend for people that you you know you think you know what well, if you if you're interested in in finding out more if you're interested in, in reading more then here are some really good places to start um you know whether, and that might be everything from and I don't want you to create like a massive bibliography but if there are some key yeah some key texts or some key videos or key audio that you think you know what this this is a really important thing then I'll put those in the show notes so that um so that our audience can get hold of those if they want to great wonderful thank you um and then my final question i think unless i think of another one um is there an is there anybody that you would recommend or anybody you think we should seek out to try and get as a future guest onto the podcast oh, that's a loaded question there's so many marvelous people um i have well i have um i have a few people that i'm i'm fond of um one of them is um a woman um called anno day who mm -hmm. I, I'm privileged to be on the advisory board for an event called Inspire Fest that happens every year. And okay. Inspire Fest's goal is to drive greater diversity in, um, in STEM, um, but she always has a future of work section um, on that. And I think what is really interesting is recognizing that STEM that the science part of STEM includes social science as well and psychology, and she does a really brilliant job of that. Um, I just think she's an incredible thought leader and would have a, some really interesting uh, perspectives. Um, okay, so I thank think you. that she's, she's someone that comes to mind. Wonderful. Thank you. All right, then. In which case, all that's left to do is to say thank you. Huge thank you very much for your time today, Monica. I've, I've really, really appreciated it. We've, we've covered a lot of ground um, and it's been really, really interesting. You've got me thinking um, deeply and hard. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. 
Thank you, Phil. It was a real pleasure. And, um, and it's, it's fun to be able to talk to somebody about something that um, I'm so passionate about that's my life's work. So I appreciate the time and um, you have a terrific day. Wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.